Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast, where we explore world-changing research from a range of disciplines. I'm Jeannie Hedden-Gallagher. In this episode, we'll learn about two ongoing projects here at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute that in the years to come will help us combat deadly viruses, and specifically, the one that causes COVID-19. First, we'll hear from a renowned researcher who spoke with my colleague, Mary Martilai. I spoke with Jonathan Dordick, a professor of biochemical engineering, who's part of a team working on an antiviral decoy strategy that could be used to detect and combat specific viruses. This work is part of a longstanding collaboration with Rensselaer Chemistry and Chemical Biology Professor Robert Linhart. Their most recent work is on SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. John, start by explaining our options for treating viral infections. Well, I think, you know, there's two different routes. I mean, there's therapeutic, which means you give a drug either when the person is sick or potentially prophylactically before the patient is sick. But then there's a vaccine, which, of course, is used to prevent the infection in the first place. So um, we scientific scientists have been much more successful long term in developing vaccines against a variety of different viral infections. Uh, and uh, but therapeutics have seriously lagged behind. Can you explain why we need better therapeutics? Well, I think the pandemic's made that pretty clear. Uh, you know, we don't, and we historically have never had very good drugs that have treated viral infections. Uh, you know, the best thing we've done is say, go take some, uh, uh, you know, pain and fever uh, reducers and uh, and go home and rest and drink as much uh, liquid as you can. And, and that's typically how we address viral infections. And, uh, obviously, vaccinations are the most significant thing that have been developed, and those have made a massive impact, of course. Uh, but um, from a therapeutics perspective, it's been very difficult. Uh, different than antibiotics against bacterial infections, where, of course, we've had since uh, really the 1930s and 40s mass production of antibiotics. Now, can you explain the antiviral strategy you're developing? So one way that we thought, and we're not the only ones, of course, who think about a decoy strategy is if you can essentially have the virus bind to your decoy, then it's not going to bind to the cells. So in order, so the virus is not alive. It's basically a packet of DNA or RNA. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's an RNA uh, that's within a uh, membrane coat of a virus, and it can't replicate on its own. It's dormant but it replicates when it gets into a target cell. So in the case of a human, it gets into various cells in the nasal passages, in the lung, and, and other parts of the body. Once it gets into the cell, then the virus replicates, breaks the cell open, moves to the next cell, and you end up with, obviously, a, a, a propagation of the virus and an infection. Um, a decoy strategy would be that the virus, instead of binding to the human cell, will actually bind to this decoy. And when it binds to that decoy, it's trapped. When a virus gets trapped, it, it basically falls apart over time, pretty quickly, actually. And so a decoy strategy be, would be a way to intercept the virus before it has a chance to enter the human cell. But keep in mind that uh, the way the decoy strategy works is not so much targeting the genetic elements of the virus, yeah. So, you know, obviously viruses are either RNA viruses or DNA viruses and so forth. But um, 
what this decoy strategy does is it targets the proteins that are on the surface of the virus. Those are typically the proteins that latch on to specific human receptors on cells. Uh, the virus just doesn't pop into the cell. It just doesn't kind of make its way to a target, you know, randomly. Uh, it gets to a certain, it goes to the human cells. There's a fairly complex mechanism it uses, and it's optimized over very long-term evolution. Uh, and it latches onto a receptor on the cell, and that's what then drags it into the cell itself. That's pretty ingenious. I know you've done this work with other viruses. What are some of the other viruses you've worked on? So, uh, this broad strategy, uh, and actually multiple strategies, some are decoy based and some are actually disinfectant type. But uh, mm. the viruses we've worked on with this decoy strategy have been uh, influenza, uh, Zika, uh, dengue. Uh, and so there are a number of examples out there uh, of viruses. Uh, the nice thing about it is they're all unrelated. They all come from different families, just like very different from coronaviruses. Uh, and therefore, the strategy we're looking at looks that to be, we can modify it in a way that allows it to target a specific kind of a, a virus. So we're really targeting what's on the surface of the protein uh, of the virus. Uh, and what's interesting is we haven't really done much with this, but if you think about it, viruses mutate all the time. If the virus is going to evade our uh, our, our latching system, where we essentially uh, grab onto surface proteins, it might then not be able to actually bind to the human cell. So actually, that could be pretty useful. But we don't have any full evidence of something like that. But what we can say is that we're really targeting what's on the surface of the virus, not so much the genetic elements. How would we use a drug like this? So there's a number of ways to look at this. Um, yes, it could be potentially used as a therapeutic. In other words, once you've been infected and you have the infection beginning, that this could prevent the spread within the body. Uh, so it reduces the viral load, so to speak. So the amount of virus, active virus you have in the body is reduced. When you reduce the viral load, that means your body, the immune system is able to catch up and be able to, to then eliminate the virus. But it could potentially be used uh, prophylactically so that uh, if you were to provide people with the uh, with this uh, decoy component, for example, when the virus does enter the body, it could be trapped. Uh, and therefore, there would be no way for it to uh, result in an infection. So can you tell us more about the COVID antiviral, how your previous work related to it, what you developed and what you found so far? So we... Uh, we started this work um, with the virus, and I mean, we've been doing work with, you know, using different enzymes that target viruses for over a decade now. You know, at the same time we were developing that, we were doing something completely unrelated. Uh, we were developing uh, a bioengineered heparin. Uh, and there's really, people look at that and say, well, these are completely different, and they are. One's a viral study and the other one happens to be, okay, here's an anticoagulant drug that we're going to make that is, uh, uh, that we're doing without using or getting the heparin from the animal. So it's an animal free approach. And on the surface, it looks like, well, these can't possibly be related. Well, it turns out that heparin has antiviral activity. And the reason is, for, and it's fairly broad, 
is because heparin binds tightly to various groups, proteins and other groups on the cell, on the viral surface. And that's been known. We didn't know it had anything with SARS-CoV-2. We had never studied that. Um, but then we asked the question, well, could heparin and could some of the analogs that we've been making of heparin that are not anticoagulant, so they will have no pharmaceutical application as an anticoagulant, could they bind to, in this case, the virus, and in particular, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. That's the protein, <clears throat> like a spike on the surface of the virus, that binds to its receptor on the human cell. And so we did a fairly simple binding study, and sure enough, we found that the binding uh, of the heparin to the virus spike protein was extraordinarily tight. Uh, it was actually, you know, we fell off our chairs when we found that data, and we repeated it, of course, and so forth. And we were just astonished. And then we started asking questions like, well, if it's going to bind to the spike protein, could it actually be antiviral? So we started working with some colleagues in Korea. They did the test and we found out that, in fact, it does have heparin and some of the analog have significant anti-SARS-CoV-2 activity. Uh, and in fact, we found that the activity is all in vitro, of course. Remember, we're using cell-based systems here. Activity that was at the same level, if not maybe up to tenfold better than, than remdesivir. Completely different mechanism, but that gives you an idea of the strength of the antiviral activity. So that was exciting. And then what also was exciting was with heparin and why it truly becomes a decoy is that normally the virus, and we've learned a lot more about this, and it's been uh, hypothesized for years about how the viruses tend to get to the cell receptor. But uh, most recently with SARS-CoV-2, it's been found that really what happens is that the virus comes to the cell surface. It actually doesn't go directly to the ACE2 receptor. It has to be positioned in such a way to do that. And the way it's positioned is that it actually binds fairly tightly to a cell surface carbohydrates, uh, what's called heparan sulfate. Sounds like heparin because it actually is pretty related to heparin, but it, it binds to those surfaces. And we have them in all our cells in our body. Uh, and so the virus binds to that heparin sulfate on the surface of the cells, and that positions the virus that we, we believe for binding to the ACE2 receptor, and then it goes into the cell and the infection occurs. Now, heparin sulfate is similar to heparin. It's, it's slight differences here and there, but that's not really critical. So we reasoned at the same time we're doing all this that, well, you know, heparin could be a decoy because it looks like heparin sulfate, but it'll bind the virus even tighter than heparin sulfate. And so that resulted in uh, essentially intercepting the virus, pulling it away, can't get to the cell surface, and the virus then breaks down. Um, we also looked at, at other molecules. Now, heparin is, is a polysaccharide, and it's heavily sulfated. Now, all that means is it has a lot of charge on them. And, and we started looking at a number of different uh, uh, seaweed preparations. And this was actually through a, uh, a Chinese collaborator that Bob Linhart had who uh, came to spend about a year at, uh, at RPI in our labs. Um, and he started fractionating, you know, the polysaccharides. And 
And one of them did extremely well. It was a very large, high molecular weight. It's actually what's called a fucoidin because it, it, it has uh, uh, structures of a fucoses, which are different kinds of sugars within the chain. Very, very heavily sulfate, and that worked extremely well. <clears throat> so here we have now a, a seaweed that has a component in it that is very, very tight binding to the virus spike protein and very strong antiviral activity as well, at least in vitro. So that was exciting for us because it broadened us now from going from a drug like heparin or a precursor to a drug to other molecules that, you know, we eat them all the time. When you think about it, if you have sushi, you're going to have, <laughs> you're going to have seaweed around it. That's got the stuff in it. I mean, we have multiple different directions we're looking at. Um, yes, there are many other polysaccharides out there, many other sulfated polysaccharides out there. Um, you know, they're hard to characterize. They're hard to isolate in some cases. So there's a limit to what we're likely to do. But, um, you know, nature has actually provided us with natural products that have significant activities against viruses, bacteria, things like that. Next up, we'll hear from someone tackling the problem of SARS-CoV-2 from a very different angle. Here's Tori Wells with the story. I had an opportunity recently to speak with Lucy Zhang, a professor of mechanical, aerospace, and nuclear engineering, about how her expertise in mechanical simulation put her lab in a position to apply their research to the pandemic. Can we start by talking about your research and what it entails and maybe even what your lab is working on right now? We do computational mechanics. My focus is actually on simulations of fluid structure interactions where you have fluid interacting with solid. So a lot of the applications that we're currently working on are related to biomechanics where you have you know, blood interacting with soft tissues and then you also have airflow interacting with soft tissues and how they, um, like phonation, for, for example, that's one of the example, um, uh, a project that we're currently working on. So that's airflow, uh, pushing the vocal cords to open and then come close. And that's how we talk, how we make sounds. So we mm. do that type of simulations, uh, modeling and simulations uh, of that type. And when the pandemic happened, how did you pivot your research at that point to examine this challenge? Yeah, so I wouldn't even say there is much of pivoting um, in that sense, because it was just naturally falls into what I have been doing. Um, because when we are talking about these aerosol particles flowing around uh, in air and, um, you know, together with the different scenarios like breathing, talking, and, you know, projectile of, you know, of these particles. Um, we have been working on stuff like this uh, before, just not necessarily for, you know, for, for this, but we had looked at uh, simulations of particles flowing in, the, in air, for example, and um, not necessarily this size, but now, that we know what the viral particle sizes are, 
And we also know how it distributes when we are talking or coughing or, you know, all these different scenarios, how they are embedded in this distribution of different sizes of particles. Then we can put them into, we can basically generate more specific scenarios using the same technology that we have been developing. Uh, so in that sense, technology-wise, we're not reinventing the whole wheel because it's already there. Um, we're more focused on the application side. So what does that tell you maybe about the importance of your research before the pandemic and even the importance of fundamental research in general? Um, I would say I didn't realize that my research can be... Um, can be significant in this way, in a more, in this sort of timely manner. Uh, so, you know, this is an application that we've, we've never really uh, touched on before. And then with the new application comes in uh, new challenges. So for example, we have to tune our, our simulation technique in in different ways in order for this to happen so for example what we had before was say uniform particle distribution and now that we know and then they are also uh, a different different uh, order magnitude in size for these particles but now that knowing that there is a distribution and they are nominally smaller in size now we have to look at our uh, our original algorithm and say, well, maybe we need to tune this and tune this in order for this to, in order for the whole simulation to be simulated in a more, uh, more efficient manner, right? Mm. So fundamentally, we do have to go back to our technology or even formulation that we originally uh, had formulated uh, in order for this to be done correctly and more efficiently. So there had been uh, sort of uh, uh, some fundamental changes that lead to more applicable, uh, more application-driven uh, changes. Can you talk about some of the questions or some of the problems that you and your students are trying to answer right now? There are actually different, uh, different aspects. Uh, one, it's actually a proposal uh, that we sent out looking at how airflow, how we can better design masks to have uh, better and more durable masks. We, at the beginning when uh, masks were so scarce and we were all trying to figure out whether say N95 masks or the regular surgical masks, how long they can be worn and how we can design a mask. So people, you know, say, you know, in the front line, workers can wear it longer time without causing uh, fatigue or headaches. So um, part of this um, a thing that uh, a collaborator and I have been working on was to look at how we can better design these fibers or uh, uh, these masks, layers of masks, so we can, so it can effectively block all the uh, viral particles and in the meantime we can breathe better and better durability and all that so this is one um, sort of application area that we're also working on and then uh, the other one is the robot one that actually separate into um, multiple uh, different areas and one of them 
uh, I think the most interesting one that I think is look at how we can arrange different uh, settings, like say in classrooms or in stores, how we can best optimize the space that we have, knowing the HVAC uh, system that is being set up so that we can best arrange our classroom uh, or classrooms so that we can have a, uh, a better or you know, more optimized way of arranging the people. Where should the podium be? That's where the lecture is in relation to the classroom desks, how the students should be placed in order for everybody to have a safe environment. We ultimately want to be able to um, design this technology or app so that, uh, so given this enough space and given uh, knowing where the HVAC is placed, we can figure out where everybody is. We can figure out how, where the instructors should be and how the student, how many students can be placed very quickly with a push of a button. So that's ultimately where we want to get to. And we should probably take a step back for the listeners and just explain that the robot you're talking about is part of a larger multi-institutional grant that you're part of. Exactly. Yeah. So this is um, this is a a project that started with uh, Purdue um, University, and um, it started with a simple concept and and say, you know, we would like to design a robot that that uh, that can go into each individual uh, dorm rooms to sanitize. Right, so instead of sending real physical people and have a potential of them getting infected, we're going to send in robots, right? So these robots will go around in each room and, and figure out where the obstacles are and it has all these ways to figure out the route it should be going and, you know, doing it efficiently. So that was the original concept. And then it started to branch out because we also wanted to use similar type of technology to design future filtration system for HVACs. Not only UV lights that can kill these uh, virus, but you also have all these HVAC system where you have you put filters in, and to, in order to keep the campus safe or dorm room safe. You can't have all these uh, viral particles to flow around inside the HVAC system. So we have to design good uh, filters in order to filter out these viral particles effectively. So that's another part of the design where flow, um, we have to sort of use the simulation to model the flow with the carrying particles that goes into the HVAC and how these filter or better designed filter can do that for us, right? So that's where the flow simulation would come in. And then we said, okay, well, how do we do this in the regular classroom? So that's eventually also part of the campus. So, um, so the simulation and uh, modeling these air vero particles and together in the simulation with different uh, scenarios came in. You kind of touched on this before, but how has the pandemic changed your own view of your research and what your group could continue to do in the future, even beyond this pandemic? I think it just 
opened up the entire um, field uh, for people uh, like me um, who do simulations and to do, you know, particularly, you know, flow simulations. Um, it it help us to do. Um, I mean, in terms of in terms of field, I think optimization is one field that I have not got into before. But now we are because these the ultimately when we do these simulations, um, our goal is to do better designs to better optimize our space. For example. It's a different sort of goal before, say, we do these, um, you know, pre-surgery planning and all that. A lot of it is predictive. And now we're using it for designs. And I think that's where it sort of opened up a whole field uh, for my research lab. Um, and I know that um, in terms of, you know, design optimization, um, we need a lot of data. And the simulation does provide that data. And one thing that we can also look into, we are looking into, is to say, how can we better use the data and perhaps uh, incorporating, you know, machine learning type of technology into our, as part of our design strategy to make it faster and make it better. You can hear more from Professor Zhang on a podcast she co-hosts called This Academic Life. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening.